0: I'm Sarah Samwell. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. This month, we have a special two-part episode on Canada's complicated relationship with China from two very different perspectives. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Wenran Jiang, the president of the China Energy and Environment Forum and advisor for the Asia program with the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. So I want to start off with your reaction to the latest news of the Huawei executive uh, Meng Wanzhou. Just recently we heard that she may be in talks with the U.S. Department of Justice for a potential release back to China. After two years, why do you think this is happening now?
1: This is a very uh, good question. Uh, It is happening itself is very important uh, because potentially we have a solution on the two year prolonged crisis of Meng Wanzhou arrest. We all know shortly afterwards Uh, China contained two Canadians. Now we refer as two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Um, So it's important news, good news in a sense, there are solutions potentially a deal coming along. And the second one, uh, I think it's happening. uh, It's important. It's not actually proposed by the defense, not by Huawei or Meng herself. Uh, It's by the Americans. So they are trying to be proactive in resolving uh, this problem, uh, which I think is very important. Normally it is the defense who might be in a weak position trying to avoid prosecution, uh, to try to reach out to the prosecution side for a bargain now the other way around. And the third point is why now? I think uh, if the US Department of Justice has all the cards and their overall Goal of basically striking down on Chinese high tech Huawei uh, in particular and fight uh, to uh, contain the rise of China, China's high tech sector in, in general, those trends have not changed. Then why they propose this uh, deal. I think uh, many people uh, have pointed out that the only uh, reason might be that they do not seem to think they have a strong case for Hmong's extradition to the United States. And therefore um, they want to find a way to make Hmong uh, acknowledging guilt and yet at the same time uh, move on uh, to have all the leverage. And uh, so uh, these are uh, factors, uh, very important development, very important development, so we'll see what happens.
0: So do you think it will actually happen?
1: Meng so far has resisted uh, and saying she has done nothing wrong. Uh, she was uh, unlawfully prosecuted or persecuted for whatever reason the US uh, against China and therefore that put the United States Department of Justice into a very awkward position. If you let that Meng go without Hmong acknowledging, acknowledging any wrongdoing, uh, it simply shows to the world that they didn't have a case and uh, they wrongly uh, uh, arrested her. And so therefore, I think the US side is looking for steps downs and the Hmong has not given them that exit. And therefore the case may actually uh, continue to drag on. So, but there are other possibilities with the new presidency, uh, Biden may choose to drop it. That's one way to end it. And of course, uh, many people, including some very prominent lawyers has said the Canadian uh, side, the Minister of Justice himself can just intervene uh, and, and the whole thing is totally within the extradition uh, rule of law framework uh, procedure. And all the evidence points to the fact that the whole case is politicized. Uh, it has been a bargaining chip ch- for the Trump administration in the trade war and the overall, uh, against China, kind of a, a overall theme, uh, Canada is being put in between and uh, we should probably act at the moment to end this whole thing. So those are different possibilities of reaching a deal, but a different kind.
0: Yeah, uh, recently Huawei Vice President Stephen Liu said that the Trump administration put Canada in kind of a tough spot So how do you see this kind of potentially impacting Canada and China's relationship and even the U.S. and China's relationship, if it has been so politicized?
1: Well, in short term, the Meng Wanzhou case versus the two Michaels case uh, are the primary uh, primary, uh, blocking uh, kind of issues for a healthy or normal uh, bilateral relationship. The Chinese side accused Canada of uh, hostage diplomacy, and we accused the Chinese arrest of two Michaels as a retaliatory, arbitrary detention, also a kind of hostage diplomacy. Neither side now uh, is willing to back down, and therefore we do not see this uh, unresolved situation would have uh, any positive impact uh, for bilateral relations. But going beyond the short term, uh, we know for sure that one way or the other, shorter or longer period of time, uh, these cases will be resolved. And the issue for the medium to long term prospect of Canada China relations would be where do we want to position ourselves as a middle power vis a vis China, a rising superpower, soon to be replacing the United States. Uh, the largest market in the world, second largest trading partner to Canada. Uh, We need to have some strategic thinking, strategic vision in formulating a realistic, effective China policy based on our national interests. And unfortunately that's not the case at the moment.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. So what does this all potentially mean for them? I'm sure many Canadians are worried about them in this kind of hostage diplomacy that you mentioned in this game of chicken that seems to be happening.
1: The two Michaels are the victims in this whole power play between the United States uh, and China and Canada unfortunately uh, got in between. Uh, the Chinese security, uh, national security related legislations are, are vague and therefore they can be held for this long uh, without even going to trials. And therefore it's very depressing for the family members, for the general Canadian public and certainly for the Canadian uh, government. And uh, we all want him them to Michael's to be back to Canada. Uh, but realistically speaking, uh, we also know that may not happen unless, and until the Hmong case is resolved. Uh, China will not back down in such a fight. And eventually, even Hmong's problem uh, uh, is resolved. Say, hypothetically, a deal was reached for whatever, in whatever f- format. And Meng sent back to China. The Chinese would still not be just saying it's a hostage exchange situation, as some people proposed. Uh, they said the two are not connected, and they will still put on a trial and convict the two Michaels, probably expel them. But we want that, no matter what the formality, we want that to happen sooner or later. Otherwise, the two Michaels are lingering in jail in very bad conditions because uh, not that the Chinese particularly treat them badly, uh, they're treating all the foreign health prisoners waiting for trial in such conditions. Uh, it's just generally poor uh, and that's not good for them. And we want them to be back uh, approaching around the two year mark of their arrest.
0: So Trudeau has mainly stayed out of this, you know, kind of deferring to the courts and that process. But now that the US is getting involved, do you see him taking a role and you know, potentially advocating to get the two Michaels back.
1: Well, Trudeau, in a sense, and the entire uh, labor cabinet, they've been telling the Canadian public, uh, "It's out of their hands. It's within the extradition procedure, and it's about rule of law." Uh, in fact, that's misleading. The Trudeau government, in fact, in this case, has taken a position, a taking position to side with the United States to first arrest Hmong, uh, if the, uh, the arrest of Hmong was primarily done at the lower level, uh, law reinforcement, a uh, procedural side, the cabinet and the Minister of Justice, after knowing all the very strong evidence how politicized this is, uh, should have ended this, but they chose not to. So therefore, uh, they are in fact taking a position Mm -hmm. Uh, to side with Americans to continue this case. But it's being dressed as if there is nothing uh, the government can do. In fact, the law and the procedures, uh, the rule of law requires them to intervene when the case is politicized. And the general public does not know this. uh, And uh, therefore, the true government uh, uh, is pleading innocent, in this case, but it is not. It's taking a strong position in siding uh, with Americans to prosecute the case continuously, knowing it's politicized, it's a bargaining chip by Trump against China, and yet the Minister of Justice can intervene and should intervene, but chose not to intervene.
0: And and why do you think that is? Why are they so adamant to side with the Americans uh, when two Canadians are at risk?
1: And many prominent Canadians uh, wrote open letters. Many experts have pointed this out, and they should say they have told the government to uh, deal with the issue as soon as possible, as early as possible because he could have ended this uh, one year ago, one year and a half ago. you know, but he didn't uh, We're talking about Minister David Lamanti. And therefore the call to release her continues and yet the government uh to the line, which is unfortunate because it gives the Chinese excuse of accusing Canada of being the accomplice uh, in this prosecution against Meng Wanzhou. And they're basically saying Canada uh, has no, independ- no independence. We're subjecting to uh, the Americans Uh, we're a dependency uh, of Americans. In many ways, we depend on the United States economically, uh, but we do uh, sometimes walk away in very major political issues. We differ from the United States, such as Prime Minister John Kui-Chien's decision not to join the United States uh, for the invasion of Iraq. Many people say this is one of those moments we can differ from the United States, which is our ally and our friend. But we can differ from time to time and the the relationship uh, is strong enough to withstand such differences in policy choices. Uh, But we're lingering around and this is where we are today.
0: Yeah, we seem to be just caught in this holding pattern waiting for the U.S. to act. Now they've kind of put this potential deal forward but remains to be seen So I guess like what the question a lot of people are left with is what was this all for?
1: Well, the bilateral relationship between uh, Canada and China has been damaged uh, very severely. We know as a result, the public opinion in Canada towards China, uh, the favorable opinions have dropped very, very substantially probably to a historical low And we're at the 50 year mark of the bilateral establishment of diplomatic relations, I think is unfortunate, Uh, but looking forward on bilateral relationship, we need to have some kind of a strategic thinking and going all the way back to Pierre Trudeau, who is current Prime Minister Trudeau's father. When he um, decided to open up with China in 1970, China, was in the middle of a cultural revolution. China had no human rights legislation laws to talk about and China was in the middle of a worship to Chairman Mao who was an absolute ruler and the party at the time asserted absolute control of every aspect of a Chinese individual freedom expression and life. It was a totalitarian state and yet Pierre Trudeau decided One quarter of the world's population at the time should not be excluded from the global affairs. China's political future, economic future, has to be decided by Chinese themselves. And Canada, by opening up to China, may potentially play a long-term role in uh, bringing China back to international society, which China is now, Uh, but also in the long run, let China move in toward the direction uh, through its own dynamics and uh, change for the better, and China has since then. Uh, I think all these strategic considerations should be uh, today, five decades later, still in place. Uh, Pierre Trudeau also wanted Canada to act as a buffer between the two large world powers, the United States and China, even China at that time. Has the largest population, yet economically weak. And today China is as strong in many sectors have overtaken the United States. Canada can still play that buffer role rather than totally leaning towards the United States. And I think the broader issue looking forward on bilateral relations is how do we learn the lessons of the past 50 years and to engage China based on a broader cost calculation of global affairs and the Canadian national interests, uh, not narrowly defined by ideology, not narrowly defined by uh, following the hawks of the Trump administration and trying to even outperform them, uh, such as some of the people advocated uh, from no other than McDonnell Laurie Institute based in Ottawa. And, uh, and that is not a way forward in, promoting Canadian national interest.
0: So what do you see is potentially happening as the next step in this case? What should we be watching out for?
1: I think looking forward, uh, the Americans would probably wanted to look for a uh, compromise as already being reported. The two sides we know uh, talk to each other uh, off record, uh, in secret while the court proceedings are going on. But the fact that the American side chose to leak it to the press, a syndication of some kind of a test balloon to see how the public react, how the Chinese react, uh, how, uh, you know, all parties react, and so they can uh, move forward. Uh, of course, one solution is for the Biden administration uh, to drop it. Uh, the other is a more complex format of compromise, That is, Meng Wanzhou does not directly acknowledge wrongdoing or guilt as requested by the US quote unquote plea bargain conditions that leaked. Rather, she can say uh, there were some misunderstandings in the case. She can say she had done nothing wrong uh, legally, but there are places where she misunderstood the US banking procedures and caused misunderstanding. And the Americans at the same time Moving uh to acknowledge that, saying maybe their case against Hmong is not that strong, and therefore there were some misunderstandings uh, instead of a prolonged trial uh that neither side would have a clear win, so therefore avoiding years of appealing uh you know counter uh uh, uh appealing for the court procedural issues, they may end this. With good faith uh, for both parties. And then also, in some ways, accommodating a behind the door arrangement with the Chinese authorities uh, to release the two Michaels, uh, which I consider the last scenario would be the most promising. But even a better alternative would be the one that I mentioned earlier. Many people urge that the Minister of Justice in Canada simply intervened and all, and all this theater and all and all this uh, stuff which is totally within his jurisdiction. Uh, it doesn't need even to go to the cabinet. The Minister of Justice can review the case and saying, uh, I'm putting a stop to it. Send Meng Bak. Uh, of course, when he does that, he should have an arrangement with the Chinese authorities uh, preferably behind the doors to secure the earliest possible release of the two micros.
0: Mm, lots to look out for and see how this new information changes things or doesn't and how Biden could potentially change the course as well. I'd like to turn now to the um, issue of Hong Kong and the pro-democracy protests. On November 12th, the Canadian government announced new measures for Hong Kong residents to immigrate to Canada. This has been in response to the new security law that China implemented for Hong Kong in July. So I'm wondering if you can start off by kind of giving us a background. How did this new security law come to be and why has it been so controversial?
1: Well, the national security law was not on the table for Hong Kong last year. Uh, What the central government in Beijing was proposing to the Hong Kong legislature is to have an extradition procedure that allow the central government to take um, national security, primarily corruption related criminals uh, being extradited back to the mainland from Hong Kong. Uh, this was widely interpreted in Hong Kong by the general public as a mainland's interference into Hong Kong's uh, legislative and uh, judicial process. Uh, Under the one country, two systems arrangement, China was supposed to leave Hong Kong alone. And that's why there was large scale public demonstrations and continuous protest for much of last year, especially the second half of last year. Um, Then the Hong Kong government, and the central government, in fact, backed down. They said, okay, they're going to uh, leave it for now. Uh, But even the central government backed down on this uh, extradition treaty request, uh, the fairly radical uh, protesters in Hong Kong did not stop. And then they continued to protest and they turned very violent. Molotov cocktails were made Uh, hundreds of thousands of them on campus. You know, they attacked the police, attacked the public property, occupied the airport. Yet at the same time, uh, the Western press uh, supported them as some kind of a a, a legal, democratic-aspired, anti-dictatorship democracy movement. Uh, I think by later last year, the public opinion turned against these radical protesters. If at that point, the Hong Kong protesters uh, stop all this and then the central government would have no excuse to do any control over and yet they continue to do all these violent protests. I think at one point, the central government have decided they have crossed the line enough and enough. Uh, Instead of taking a back down position after nearly a year, Uh, they struck down down very hard on Hong Kong by passing a a very sweeping national security legislation for Hong Kong and passed it. Legally, they have the power to pass that legislation imposed on Hong Kong. So in my opinion, a smaller number of very radical players in Hong Kong overplayed their hand allow the Chinese government to find the excuse to impose a very severe legislation, curbing uh, the freedom of expression, uh, basically uh, making the general uh, protest that we saw last year impossible in Hong Kong. And um, once the legislation is down, the opposition basically fell apart. Some of them went to exile, some of them immediately quit politics, and most of them, once arrested, based on the new legislation, pleaded uh, guilty, and they are serving jail sentence. Uh, so, if we look back in the past year of Hong Kong, a year and a half also, uh, we'll see a situation that uh, the Chinese have asserted, the central government has uh, has asserted far more control over Hong Kong. What Hong Kong got after all these radical uh, protests was a uh, counterproductive, more control by the central government. Uh, I personally support the all hands-off pr- approach of the original promised one country, two systems situation. And yet, I'm looking at the situation and I analyze what happened. I'm say have to say that the Hong Kong radicals receiving substantial amount of foreign uh, funds, uh, mostly from the United States, uh, have overplayed their hands and therefore tactically lost uh, their chance of keeping Hong Kong as a more open, less interfered uh, situation from the central government. And unfortunately, this is where we are. Uh, As for the Canadian government who has offered to uh, asylums uh, for refugee status, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a long-term effective solution in supporting Hong Kong's uh, democratic aspirations. There are millions of uh, Hong Kongers. Can we take them all? There are human rights issues inside China, in Yogur area, in Tibet, in other places. Uh, are we? going to be able to take millions of those people into Canada? I think the answer for China's democratic future should be inside China, and the dynamics of reform and future directions should be uh, determined by the reform-oriented forces inside China, uh, which is more effective. I don't think, despite our aspiration to help China's democratic future, we have very limited Uh, impact, uh, if at all. And uh, therefore, we need to formulate a strategy. What do we do in Canada uh, in supporting long-term human rights uh, development in China? What can we do to be effective at the middle power?
0: You mentioned that the one country, two systems is essentially null and void with this security law. So what is the future for Hong Kong then?
1: The future for Hong Kong, unfortunately, is more looking like the mainland. Well, not quite the same, although Hong Kong still has uh, relatively a much more freer press than the mainland. There are still, uh, you know, opposition voices, publications, critical of China, you know, groups like pro-independence groups are banned, uh, but, like Falun Gong, and other uh, uh, groups are banned in the mainland. Uh, are not banned in Hong Kong. There are diff- dissidents still operating, but it's definitely not as free as before. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, the future is uncertain. And we would all like to see Hong Kong has more autonomy. Uh, and China, after a while, when they see the pro-independent forces are being uh, crashed. Uh, they may go back to ease uh, the pressure a little bit, uh, but once imposed uh, by the central government, this national security legisl- legislation on Hong Kong, uh, I doubt Hong Kong would be fully re- returning uh, to the pre-legislation period of time. Um, but many Majority of Hong Kong people, general public, seem to think some level of stability is also needed. And therefore, there's a uh, balance between whether Hong Kong should have the kind of a uh, violent protests and instability that we witnessed uh, much of last year, or Hong Kong having trade-off, less freedom, uh, more stability. And therefore uh, it is uh, quite something that we should uh, watch closely.
0: Mm, they're definitely at a crossroads, that's for sure. So what does this mean for somewhere, somewhere like Taiwan? Do you think China will start um, reaching out and doing something similar there? They don't have the same kind of protests going on that we saw in Hong Kong, but will China be emboldened to bring Taiwan back into the mainland system?
1: I think it's difficult for um, China to impose the central government in Beijing to impose the same thing for Taiwan. They've worked for many years trying to work out some similar format, uh, one country, two systems, with Taiwan. The Taiwanese government and the general public uh, they don't want that. Uh, after the uh, imposition imposition of the security legislation over Hong Kong. I don't think there's more general public uh, sympathy towards a similar format. The question for Taiwan then is, where is it going? Is it going to hold the status quo? Or is it going to move uh, more aligned with the American Hawks or even moving towards declaring independence? The danger here is that uh, if the, st- that quote is being maintained, there's very little excuse for the mainland to attack Taiwan militarily, which uh, they have not given up. Uh, they didn't say the only way to unify is uh, peaceful. Uh, they're ready to use military. Uh, then the other big factor is how Americans are going to play the quote unquote Taiwan card. If they push Taiwan too far to go independence, uh, is likely to trigger a armed invasion by the mainland, which I think is totally inappropriate. It shouldn't happen. Uh, But realistically, it is a option that the Chinese military and the Chinese government is serious to use. And so therefore the tension and the flashpoint of Taiwan in US-China relations in general, and in bilateral relations between Taiwan and the mainland, is a very sensitive one. And therefore it has to be really handled with care. Uh, different from Hong Kong, which we know Hong Kong is part of China. Nobody disputes that. Even China imposed this harsh legislation on Hong Kong. There's very little outside world can do. Uh, but Taiwan is different. Taiwan has de facto uh, independence is, has its own government, even in international law or uh, the UN system. Uh, most countries uh, do not uh, acknowledge Taiwan as an independent entity, but everybody wanted to status this quo and they don't want the mainland to invade Taiwan. And so therefore, uh, Taiwan is different in that sense from Hong Kong. Uh, because of the potential arms invasion by the mainland, uh, it should be, all parties should tread very carefully.
0: I want to circle back a little bit to the refugee um, asylum seeker status that Canada is offering to some Hong Kong residents. Um, How does this kind of complicate Canada's relationship with China, you know, viewing a part of it as somewhere people need to flee from?
1: Well, the Chinese government accused Canada uh, of uh, um, interfering in China's domestic affairs. Uh, If there's anything that we do in Canada, it will be interpreted in that way. Um, The Canadian government's sympathetic statements uh, over the past year to Hong Kong, uh, protesters uh, were criticized in such a way. Uh, So is our opening uh, to asylum seekers uh, as being seen by Beijing as such. Uh, And I think the issue for Canada is these argumentarian uh, Majors, uh, We have 300,000 Canadian passport holders in Hong Kong and we think we have a stake in Hong Kong's future. Uh, another country who look at Hong Kong very closely, of course, is the former uh, Hong Kong's colonial master, uh, Great Britain, which has substantial amount of interest and people living uh, in Hong Kong. And the question now is what is the best way in handling the Hong Kong situation, that's actually within our capacity to deal with a potential refugee, quote unquote, or asylum seekers exit. Uh, to what extent that we uh, frame that into a acceptable uh, bilateral framework with the mainland Chinese government, in this case uh, is delicate. I think, um, the issue about, first of all, the issue about asylum seekers. I, my personal assessment is that we're not going to see the large exile of Hong Kong rest in to Western countries, Canada, Britain. Hong Kong, yes, uh, is not as free as before, uh, but it's not that bad to the extent it doesn't come to the tipping point that. Uh, people feel I can't live here anymore. I need to give abandon what I have and go to Canada. And therefore I think the likelihood, at least in the short term, we may not have a large exit asylum seeking crisis from Hong Kong, partly because the mainland Chinese government probably is not stupid enough to drive people away because they want Hong Kong to be stable. They want to, Uh, economic activities to go on. And the imposition of that security laws itself was primarily aimed at crushing the radical uh, protesters who made Hong Kong so unstable. Uh, Basically uh, collapsed Hong Kong's tourist industry which is a major uh, driver of the economy. And now if Hong Kong is back to normal, I don't see why uh, the central government wants to do more damage to Hong Kong itself by limiting or choking people's uh, space uh, to the extent that they will all leave. Uh, so therefore it's kind of a compromise position Canada should look at uh, rather than overstepping, uh, overstating uh, our positions without thinking about our capacity, without a realistic assessment of what's really going on on the ground here in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, some people have spoken about uh, Canada potentially uh, sanctioning China over the pro-Democracy law.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So is that an overstep then? Uh,
1: The conservatives are pushing for that. The country size uh, of China uh, is so large. Uh, If we name a few top officials and uh, apply personal sanctions against them, uh, in my opinion, uh, is more symbolic uh, than having a real impact. Uh, but if we do that, I think the damage uh, caused to bilateral relationship uh, would be severe. Uh, uh, in the short term, it may in fact complicate uh, the two Michaels case for potential uh, securing their release. In the long, medium to long term, they're ineffective in the case of China I think we need to look into a comprehensive, strategic China policy framework, which fit into overall Canada's foreign policy framework. And currently we have neither. Uh, We need to have those framework before we uh, figure out what would be the most effective approach in promoting human rights in China, uh, rather than jumping into being just tough, I agree with uh, foreign Minister champions who read that it is just talking tough, uh, but it's not easy to be smart. I think Canada needs not just being smart, we need to be first of all strategic, which is the long- term fundamental issue that we need to deal with. And Then on the issue to issue basis, our engagement with China needs to be principled and smart and uh, thinking about a long-term impact.
0: So speaking about sanctions and long-term impact, um, I'd like to talk now about the Uyghur people and potential concerns about China's treatment of them. Um, Can you just bring us up to speed about who are they and why should we be concerned?
1: Well, the Uyghur people and related uh, human rights issues have been highlighted by the recent call of the Canadian U.N. Ambassador Bob Ray for a investigation into the concentration camps uh, that uh, in Xinjiang's uh, Uyghur minority area, whether uh, according to Bob Ray, there was certain elements of the genocide uh, being committed, uh, which of course, caused a stir and a, a severe backlash uh, by the Chinese government. Um, for those, uh, 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 our listeners were not informed, um, the Xinjiang autonomous region where the Uyghur's population uh, traditionally lived had some uh, human rights issues due to the fact that many people think uh, the Chinese are cracking down on the ethnic group where the Chinese government is saying what they're doing is primarily rooting out the terrorist extremist groups that's linked to the Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and generally speaking, the Islamic fundamentalist and extremists uh, in the Middle East. And these people penetrated Xinjiang area uh, wanted to have some kind of uh, separation independence. And they committed substantial amount of uh, terror against ordinary people, of the yogurt people, as well as Han people around China. And so the Chinese solution uh, is to set up some education camps, technology training, training centers, according to them. But the dissident groups who accuse China of uh, violence, of human rights, uh, they view it differently. And uh, they said at some point or continuously, China may have put in up to a million of the Muslim uh, minority populations uh, through these camps. And they showed some of this evidence. Uh, so the one million uh, population in the concentration camps uh, is not scholarly, factually properly said, verified, or backed, but nevertheless, the mainstream Western media Cook the number and run with it. And that's what we kind of know. And the Chinese government, by the way, is totally in rejection of such a thing. Uh, they call it fabricated. So therefore, I think there's a need for further verification on what the nature of these camps, whether they exist, and if they exist, uh, to what extent, how much uh, how many uh, numbers, uh, how, what the population size. Uh, in my own limited opinion, uh, I think the repression and human rights related, human rights related uh, issues, uh, repression, certainly do exist in Xinjiang. Uh, but I also have some doubts on the numbers as claimed primarily by distant groups by American hawks and very ideological um, oriented conservative anti-China think tanks who advocated all this. Uh, I think we need more verification. If Canada is calling for investigation, I think that should be a part of it.
0: Will we see someone like a Bob Ray who went in to the Rohingya issue go into China? Could that potentially be a way of um, addressing some of those disparities in information?
1: Interestingly, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs said, uh, anybody wants to go to Xinjiang to verify, uh, they can go uh, and verify. Uh, And of course the Western press would say, oh, uh, they will be monitored, there will not be truly an independent investigation. Uh, But you know what, there's a large uh, group of all the major uh, Middle Eastern Muslim Countries' delegation, uh, went to China, went to Xinjiang, and including Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, and all these countries uh, which has a natural tie to the Uyghur, ethnically, population. uh, They went to Xinjiang and they went away supporting China's policy there. And the one argument Chinese government put up to say to the Western world's criticism is that, look, all these Muslim countries have come and concluded uh, they're not having major human rights issues in Xinjiang. And uh, therefore, and they claim also the very much uh, UN uh, uh, support on human rights related uh, issues on China uh, to prove that they have the majority of the country's support. And of course, Western countries saying, oh, many of these countries uh, economically depend on China and many of these countries are not democracies. And so the issue is very controversial. Uh, I think um, Canada, for example, uh, Bob Ray um, from UN, uh, we should probably work out something with the Chinese saying, look, we want to send in a delegation to verify uh, because Chinese, disputed some of these satellite based photos and claiming these are concentration camps. And then they said, these are factories, kindergarten sites, Uh, they're they're showing their own evidence to say the justification backing up the 1 million people being uh, in the concentration camps theory is false. Uh, The only way is to go and to go to the ground and find out. And I found that part is lacking at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me be clear, I'm not endorsing what China does in Xinjiang. I'm just saying we need to be cautious. Don't confuse uh, human rights repression, uh, human rights related issues in the region, which I think the Chinese government may have to answer. We should not com- uh, confuse that with genocide or saying there's a 1 million people concentration camps. We just need to verify further by accepting these kind of uh, general accusations. We need to have better backing for those.
0: Yeah, so until this happens, until you know we can get further information, uh, what do you think should be done to protect the, the Uyghur people?
1: Frankly speaking, we have no impact on Mm. how China does in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, Uh, we don't have, the Americans would not even to have impact on internal affairs of China. If we don't do well, as the Trump administration has demonstrated, we're going to be counterproductive. Canada as a middle power, as a democracy, we have strong human rights related uh, values and uh, we want to uh, promote human rights. And therefore the question for us is, how do we promote human rights in China uh, that is not counterproductive, that is effective? Uh, Not that we give up, because China is our important trading partner just for the sake of trade. We do nothing about uh, human rights. We used to do a lot on China's human rights by collaborating uh, with possible routes of jointly funding uh, legal networks, uh, monitoring local elections, training judges. Uh, We need to do measures that primarily, not to change China overnight, over the next week, next month, next year, next decade, but invest in long-term collaboration to promote China's internal progressive forces that would eventually let the Chinese people change themselves in the direction that we desire. More open society, better respect our human rights. And if you look at the past 50 years where China used to be when Pierre Trudeau recognized China until today, China has made tremendous amount of progress even in the human rights area. Uh, if we put that trajectory of the past 50 years into the next 50 years, uh, we should be optimistic. Uh, and we should be uh, acting like uh, moving in the direction that we can help China rather than a uh, grumpy old white man or a few white women uh, who think they know better than what China should be. And when China is not moving in their direction, all the direction they desire, designed for China, and somehow they will blame on China and everything China does today, yesterday, tomorrow, uh, in their views will be negative. And therefore they, they have no formula other than criticize, negate, uh, denounce, and confront, uh, decouple, contain, and push back. I don't think those are productive policies And they should act not according to their own judgment or moral standards uh, as if they know better than the Chinese people about China. And they should look at China and look at how Chinese people and help Chinese people to change China in a better desired democratic directions on their own pace through their own internal dynamics.
0: So a lot to think about there and the ever complicated international relations between Canada and China. So as a last thought, I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us about anything that we're not discussing when it comes to Canada's relationship with China, where are potential policy blind spots? Um, I think
1: there are things we should do with China beyond the, two person versus Meng Wanzhou case, beyond whether we will do a free trade agreement, beyond how we balance China and the United States, we need to look at seriously two issues. One is the energy front. In the Western part of Canada, uh, how do we um, secure the China's uh, vast largest energy market, largest energy buyer of every kind in the world, that to have our Canadian energy uh, and produce very cleanly in mostly Western part of Canada to be exported to China, that can only happen in a healthy overall bilateral relations framework. Because we are having a trans mountain pipeline expansion um, if on schedule to be completed in the next three or four years, there'll be an extra, you know, 600,000 barrels capacity daily to go to the West Coast. China is a buyer and importer. If China does not take these oil, even we have the pipeline, will not be able to find the buyer. And the largest private investment, LNG Canada, $40 billion investment, is also scheduled in four or five years to be completed. And the major target for LNG, Canada's project is China. And we also need to secure a better, broader framework. These will be beyond Meng Wanzhou versus two Michaels. And we want to have, we need to find a way to engage China, on a sectoral basis or on a broader economic investment basis, to secure that market for Canadian exports, which is critical for Canadian economy. Uh, the second issue we should not overlook is the climate change issue. In this, in this regard, Canada has so much more common in common with China than the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration coming in to return to the Paris climate framework will give a wonderful opportunity for a renewed US-China collaboration on climate change. And Canada should promote that, join that framework. And looking at these as non-traditional security issues that will promote the broader goods of the entire human race, uh, this is not about Cold War decoupling. This is, we have no choice. China is the largest emitter of CO2. And partly due to the fact that most of the advanced industrialized countries have relocated their heavily energy consuming and heavily CO2 emitting industries to China and then shape the produced goods uh, there back to our uh, own countries to consume while counting the energy uh, uh, consumption numbers and CO2 emissions on the Chinese uh, uh, head. And we need to work together with the Chinese uh, with the Paris Climate Change Agreement framework uh, to make substantial progress in that regard Uh, Because you know what, if we fail in our regard, all this containment, all this security, traditional security issue uh, would mean nothing. It would be in a natural disaster, global warming, climate change will affect all us just like the virus. Of course, the virus, uh, public health side is another issue. Those are common threats and we need common solutions. And so those are the areas uh, I think we need to look Uh, beyond the two Michaels versus Meng Wanzhou situation
0: now. Yeah, definitely looking at the bigger picture. Thank you so much for all of this, this very sweeping look into China and Canada's relation with China. This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada iAffairs Affairs Canada is located at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and is under the direction of Dr. David Carment. I've been your host, Sarah Samwell. See you next time.